This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager, and joining me today, as he always does, is our pastor of education, Reverend Sam Kastensmith. And we are welcoming you to week eight of our study from the book of Isaiah and to Isaiah chapter 53. Um, Sam and I have been talking back and forth about this, and this chapter is one that is probably the most familiar chapter of Isaiah to the average churchgoer. So many of these are what I call refrigerator magnet verses. They're the kinds of things that wind up on those little magnets you stick on your refrigerator. And, mm. and, and with good reason. This is a, this is an incredibly deep and diverse prophecy of the suffering servant. It is so clearly talking about Jesus Christ. Um, it's one of the things in the Old Testament that you refer to when you're establishing the link between the prophets and, and Jesus. Um, Sam, how would you characterize this? Gosh, Isaiah 53, of all the passages in the Old Testament, like you're, like you're saying, the, the passages that are just, I mean, it's almost like biographical about the mission of Jesus. I mean, it's, this, it feels like Isaiah 53 should be in the New Testament. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's just, yeah. it's, it's so perfectly describing who he is and what his mission is. It's up there with Psalm 22. Um, with all the descriptors of the crucifixion. And it's just a powerful, powerful passage because if you lived 700 years before Jesus and you read this about this servant savior that was coming into the world, it, it would have been shocking um, for the way that it describes this. As the King, New King James puts it, the title of this is the sin-bearing servant. Mm-hmm. Um and so it, it's laying out the case for the gospel extraordinarily clearly. Like Isaiah 53 is densely packed with great doctrines of salvation. Um, it's just a, it's awesome. It's an awesome passage. You know, I think a lot of us are familiar with the story of, um, of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, where mm-hmm. Philip is, is transported by the Holy Spirit to go and, and talk to this Ethiopian eunuch, this guy that was reading it. Um, that was, that's one of the related scriptures that I have on, I think it's on day four, um, was from Acts chapter eight, where it says, so Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he, the, the Ethiopian eunuch said, how can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he opens not his mouth in his humiliation. Justice was denied him. Who could describe his generation for his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip about whom I ask you, does the prophet say this about himself or about someone else? And the answer here is then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. So, 
you know, Philip the Evangelist immediately made the connection between uh, that passage and the gospel. And I think that um, one of the ways that we kind of check ourselves with the Old Testament of are we understanding it correctly is we see how it's quoted and used in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Um, and see what their understanding of it was. And it is so plain that Philip understood this to be Jesus. Yeah. Uh, Jesus himself makes it his own. So if you, if you were to go to John chapter 12, verse 38, Jesus has just done all of these miracles and the, he's just raised Lazarus from the dead for Pete's sake. And the people are still rejecting him. And Jesus quotes the very first verse of Isaiah 53, and he says, all of this is happening so that Isaiah 53 is going to be fulfilled. Who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And so Jesus himself says, Isaiah 53, all of this is about me. Yeah. Um, so you have it in the book of Acts chapter 8 that you were just talking about with Philip the Evangelist, and you have Jesus and John 13 or John 12 um, saying, this is about me. So the New Testament authenticates that this is about Jesus. Right. But if you're saying, well, yeah, that's convenient for the New Testament to do that. I mean, just <laughs> just read through the thing. And it's yeah. like I said, it's almost it's biographical. It's it's so clearly Jesus. Yeah. Um by by any measurement, it's talking about him. It's yeah. it's beautiful. So let's go ahead and start actually with the last three verses of chapter fifty two, which every Bible scholar that I've read say belongs in chapter 53. They're like, th- mm-hmm. these verses, uh, you know, grammatically are connected to chapter 53. So that's why we're starting in chapter 52 with verse 13. Mm-hmm. And it reads, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently, he shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. You know, the first thing that I see there is that it's talking about his visage being marred mm-hmm. to the point that it astonished the people that saw him. Mm-hmm. Um, that seems to be talking to me about how, you know, what happened to Jesus in his trial and in his execution. Yeah, and and the Isaiah does this throughout his writings, where he'll he'll say one thing where you're expecting a a different next sentence, and then he'll shock you with what he says. And so think about how this begins. It's it's God saying, "Behold, my servant shall deal prudently." And the word prudently there, it, it's a sort of wisdom that says, "I can see what my goal is, and I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to accomplish it." So a lot of different translations will say, you know, prosper. All those kinds of things. But the idea behind it is he is going to accomplish what he wants, and he shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. The Hebrew behind that is the same exact it's, – it's high and lifted up. And that expression is only used three other times in the entire Old Testament of someone being high and lifted up, and it's always speaking – of God. So Isaiah chapter 6 verse 1, you know, he saw the Lord and he was high and lifted up. But here it's saying my servant is going to accomplish what he wants. He is going to be high and lifted up. It's saying the servant has the title of divinity. And so you're expecting like he's going to get exactly what he's chasing after, right? He's going to deal prudently. He's going to get what he wants. And then verse 14 is he's going to be destroyed. And you're like, whoa, wait a minute. Hold on. <laughs> you're like, which is it? 
You know, it says he's going to get exactly what he wants, that he's going to be glorified high and lifted up, and then the next verse is he's going to be marred more than any man. Yeah. And you're like, that's counterintuitive. You, you don't expect that. But it's saying the servant gets what he wants, and what does he want? He wants to be on a mission to redeem mankind at tremendous cost to himself. He is going to be marred beyond human recognition. His form is going to be more damaged than the sons of men. Like They're going to be astonished looking at him. And this is exactly what he wants. So Isaiah is laying down this case that what the servant is after, the way that he gets his glory, is through a path that mars him. That, that that wrecks him. It's it's a stunning introduction, totally counterintuitive, but that is exactly what the gospel says. Jesus was never out of control for one moment. He knew exactly how to accomplish our redemption. The cross is not an accident. The cross is not a surprise. He did exactly as he intended to, and he was destroyed in the process. Yeah, Stunning. I, I think it's also interesting – because when it says his visage was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men, it's, it's, then it's not just talking about obviously facially. It's talking about his mm-hmm. form, his, his, his whole being, his whole body. Mm-hmm. Um, and we know what Jesus went through in the scourging before his crucifixion. It would have been horrible to see his entire body was beaten. Yeah, and beyond that, I used to talk about this when I was uh, was teaching uh, high school students, and I said, you know, I want you to imagine four levels of being, you know, heaven, Eden, the fallen creation, and hell, you know, as in terms of states that you can be in, you can heavenly state, Edenic state, a fallen creation, and then hell. Mm-hmm. Adam knew what it was like to fall from Eden to a fallen world. He experienced that level of a fall where he went from you know, perfection in Eden and all things being good to experiencing shame and guilt and all these things in a broken world where you're like, oh, you, you just imagine the, the horror of Adam realizing that he's suddenly in a fallen world. That's the degree to which Adam fell. Now I want you to take a step back and remember those four categories and now imagine the fall of Jesus. Mm. When he becomes a man, he falls from heaven past Edenic state, into a broken creation. And where does he go? That's He doesn't stop falling. Voluntarily, he will take your sin and my sin on himself, and he will descend yet even further than the fallen creation to go to the very depths of hell where he will be alienated from God, and he will suffer wrath and justice. So humankind on this planet knows what it's like to fall from Eden to a fallen creation. God, Jesus, will have a fall that makes Adam's fall look like nothing by comparison. Mm. He, he falls to a fa- – imagine the horror of going from experiencing heaven to being on the cross enduring the, f- the lowest state of being in hell where you're in absolute torment. Jesus suffered that fall. No one will ever match it. He has fallen voluntarily to take our sins more than any other person or being in history. Mm. You know, I guess the only one that could compare to that would be Satan himself. Yeah, that's true. And that's what God did for us. I mean, so yeah, he's not only physically marred, he's not only – his entire form is being. He understands what what it's like to be humiliated yeah. and suffering. 
Yeah, just coming from the heavenly realm to fallen creation would, it, would in a way mar his visage, wouldn't it? Um, yeah. You know, it's like the, every description that we have of the Lord uh, in heaven, his glory is so – it's all, it's hard to behold. It's so pure. It's so radiant. Um, so just becoming one of us would be marring his visage too, you know. Um, verse 15 reads, So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them, they shall see. And what they had not heard, they shall consider. I think that verse 15 is interesting because uh, the word sprinkle can also mean startle. And a few Bible translations have picked up on that and some commentaries have picked up on that and talked about startle. But the the word the word sprinkle it, i mean it can mean sprinkle also it's like they, it's not like they're just making up that word most of the most of the more literal and formal translations do use the use the word sprinkle the objection that i saw in the commentaries was that sprinkle typically always accompanied the there was always something with it that said what do i sprinkle mm-hmm. and on whom and what we have here is it says he's going to sprinkle many nations so we have what or who rather is being sprinkled many nations who's doing the sprinkling the servant is but it doesn't say what the servant is sprinkling him with and for that reason that those that was the ones that were making the argument for startle that was kind of what they were doing they were saying it's an, and i'm thinking hmm. no i honestly think that in this case because it's talking about his visage being marred his form more than the sons of men you know it's talking about that time when his blood literally poured from him mm-hmm. and that that was being sprinkled as the blood is was sprinkled on the, on the altar during an offering that his blood flowing was in effect sprinkling for the sins of the nation you know mm-hmm. um I think it's. I think it is sprinkle. I think that's what it's talking about. I do too, and I think what's going on there, and it might be you know intentional in the Hebrew that they're related words, um, to where you're allowed to see both of them. But I do think the the meaning of this is sprinkle, and and I'll tell you why. It's not just because the whole point of where we're going to go in Isaiah 53 is that he atoned for the sin of the world, right? And that word sprinkle is what you would do when you were on the Day of Atonement for the Jewish people. When you took the blood and you went into the Holy of Holies and you went to the mercy seat, you sprinkled the blood on the mercy seat to atone for the sins of many. But that word sprinkle, it's this, this blood is not being cast on the mercy seat. It's being cast on the nations. Right. And there's there's a, a very famous time in the book of Exodus in chapter 29 when God has come – and he's entering a covenant with his people, right? And he is launching the priesthood. And so Aaron, who is the first high priest, and his sons, um, and they come along. And so Moses institutes the covenant, and then he takes blood that's on the altar and the anointing oil, and it says he sprinkles it on Aaron and his garments and on his sons and on his son's garments, and that was to make them holy so that they could be set apart as priests, so when it says that the Lord is sprinkling blood on the nations, what it's saying is he's transforming them into a royal priesthood, Yeah. right? Here's the servant who's coming, and he's sprinkling the mm-hmm. nations. In other words, not just, not just the Jews, by the way. Many nations are now brought in and made my priests. You are the mediators of this new covenant, 
It's a beautiful picture. Okay, so before we get into chapter 53, verse 1 here, let me let our listening audience know that we were having so much problem with background noise where Sam was on campus. You, that hum that you guys were hearing behind his voice was, we think it's caused by air, air handlers <laughs> in the <laughs> ceiling above his office. Uh, so he's moved to another location. So if his voice sounds slightly different from this point forward, um, it's because he's in a different room. The magic of mobile computer Wi-Fi recording, we were able to move him somewhere else. So, um, so chapter 53, uh, verse one says, who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. This is, I mean, this is interesting, uh, to me when it talks about who has believed our report. Obviously, that's a challenge Isaiah is putting out there, or the Lord speaking through Isaiah is putting out there saying, you're not believing what we're telling you. Yeah. You know, it's like you, you know, you continue to refuse to listen to me. Yeah, and and here again, you have this combination of seemingly contradictory things, because he's saying, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Well, the arm of the Lord is always mentioned from a context of strength, right? And then it's like he's going to grow up before him as a tender plant. You know, it's like the arm of the Lord is going to come out of dry ground that's, you know, desert terrain as a tender plant that makes him seem really weak and and vulnerable. And so you get this, how in the world do you put these together? And what, what Isaiah is saying is, like, you haven't believed what all of the Scripture has been telling you, that God is, is gentle, um, gentle and lowly, to talk about the book that was mentioned at this past service. And here comes the Savior, who's the perfect representation of who God is, who's making himself, in some sense, uh, he's humbling himself, he's becoming vulnerable, and yet that is the arm of the Lord. You know, that's mm-hmm. the strength of the Lord. And for people who are like, well, if the Lord's going to move, then he's going to smash my enemies right in the face, and he's going to you know, do all these incredibly mighty things, where a lot of the time... When God moves, it's with this stunning humility and gentleness to save at personal disadvantage to himself. Um, and so it is. Like, who who believes that? Do you, do you believe that this is our God? Because it's surprising. It's, you know, Jesus quotes that passage again, 53.1, and the Gospel of John, when he's doing things that show unbelievable compassion, and people are like, ah, that's not the Savior. Um because the Savior is going to be a military general and a geopolitical figure, and he's going yeah. to do all these wonderful things. It's not Jesus. He just He's hanging out with all these poor people and healing people, and can't be him. That's not God. Um, oh, yes, it is. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think that um, 53.2 is such a familiar verse to people because it talks about um, that there's no beauty that we should de- uh, desire him. And there, it's that verse has been kind of the centerpiece of a, of a number of sermons and Bible studies over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, a lot of times it's talking about, or people say that it's talking about his physical appearance. And I, and I think it probably was to a certain extent. I think that Jesus appeared to be just an ordinary mm-hmm. guy. You know, I mean, Jesus looked like 
a first-century Jewish man because Jesus was a first-century Jewish man. Right. So that's what he would have looked like. He would have had the olive complexion. He would have had the dark hair. He would have looked Mediterranean, you know, because that's who that's who he was. Um, but I also believe that this is telling us that he didn't have any of the of the trappings of the the coming king like it's mm-hmm. like he wasn't wearing the mantle or anything like that that it was a i think it's a it's not just talking about his physical appearance but it's a posture of humility you know jesus had every right to come to this world wearing a crown and the train of his robe and mm-hmm. flanked by a legion of angels he had every right to do that and yet he came to this world as a child as a helpless infant and he grew as a, as a human being, experiencing along the way all of the things that we experience. It's like our Savior wanted to have every human experience, mm-hmm. except sin. And, That's the one thing, yeah. thankfully. And in that, you see that the Savior, the servant, is coming with no personal advantages. You know, imagine God describing himself as a tender plant. Like, wait, what? You know, you kind of want to say, hold on, you can't be a tender plant. You're the whole forest. What are you yeah, talking right. about? Yeah, yeah. You're at least a sequoia, a redwood, um, or, or being a root that comes out of dry ground. In other words, there's no advantage. It's not near a stream of water. He's, he's growing up in a land that is utterly barren, that has walked away from God. It's, it's desert territory. And yet this one, 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 life force is emerging in a place that's filled with death and he comes with no advantage. He doesn't, you know, like you remember King Saul, Israel's first king. Everyone's like, oh, he's a great king. Look how tall he is and attractive. Like like you said, Jesus doesn't come with with any of the what the Greeks called the titles to rule. He doesn't come known as a scholar. He doesn't come from all the pedigreed institutions. He doesn't come with wealth or height or, you know, military experience. Like he, he comes with none of that. Like there was nothing about him that people were like, he should be king. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no personal advantage that he takes apart from the wisdom that comes out of his mouth, you know, the word of God. Right. Um, and people did not desire him because he didn't have what we think, you know, in our st- stupidity as humans, what we want in a leader. You know, yeah. he came with the wisdom of God, and we didn't really find that all that attractive. You know, and that is something, uh, when he opened his mouth to speak, to teach, um, right then people knew that he was something different. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think about the passage where it describes him teaching the people, and it says that the people were amazed at what he said because he mm-hmm. taught as someone who had authority, not like the scribes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like he was very different from what we usually get here on, you know, at the temple. This guy sounded like he knew what he was talking about. Well, yeah, he wrote the book. You know, that helps. <laughs> yeah, right. And and it's like we talked about this last week as well. He His message didn't allow you to say, oh, that's nice. Yeah. You know, it, yeah. it forced you to say, okay, either I crown you or I kill you, but your message is drawing an intense reaction from me. And so if you were somebody who was broken, if you, if you knew that you didn't measure up, if you knew that you were hopeless and your own merits, Jesus was a drink, a nice cold drink of water that was refreshing and you wanted him. He gave you dignity. He gave you hope. But for the self-righteous who said, I've got it all together and, you know, 
when when he spoke the same word that was utterly beautiful to the lowly and the desperate was tremendously offensive to the self-righteous right. because he came to both the, the the lowly sinner, the prostitutes and drunkards, and he came to the Pharisees and he says, you're both equally lost. You yeah. both are just as desperately in need of salvation as the other. And the self-righteous hear that and ooh, they hated him for yeah, it. Yeah, they didn't like that at all. I think the other thing about having that sort of ordinary appearance was that Jesus wanted to be approachable. Yeah. Um, he wanted people to be comfortable coming to, to talk to him and to be with him. Um, he could have, you know, it, I, again, this is what I'm kind of getting at here is like, he could have been as, you know, Saul, it said, was head and shoulders above every other man in Israel. Jesus could have been two feet taller than Saul if he wanted to. He could have been, he could have had any remarkable appearance that he chose to have. He was God. I'm pretty sure he had control over those things. And yet he wanted to be Jesus. He wanted to be the teacher. He wanted to be the, the friend. He wanted to be someone who people felt comfortable coming to. And that also, I think, is a cool thing to think about. Yeah. So it's not just that we viewed him as relatable, but he also wanted to be able to relate to us. So he experienced what it was like to not be noticed, to not be seen as attractive. He experienced, you know, what it was like to live a mundane life. You know, that's one of the things that people ask about. What was he doing for those 30 years before he, you know, started this mission as the servant Isaiah's talking about? And it was like he's doing the same things we did. He was earning a living. He, you yep. know, was paying his bills. He was doing mm -hmm. all like God did that. Like so, when I'm stressed about that and I cry out to Him, you know, your Savior in heaven is going. I re I remember that. I know yeah. what you're going through. He's relatable, um, which is just awesome. He didn't have to, but out of his humility and his kindness, he chose to. His were the calloused hands of a carpenter. Mm. Yeah, know? there you go. So yeah. Um. So verse 3 uh, is another one of these famous verses that you will recognize immediately. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Um, the grief that he showed over his people Israel, where it talked about him looking out over Jerusalem and weeping, saying how he had longed to gather them to himself. This was a guy who understood what it meant to to grieve. Um, and yet, just like you talked about once before, you said Jesus never did miracles for his own benefit. They were mm -hmm. always for someone else. Jesus' grief was never for himself. He experienced grief because of the, of the plight of others. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even from the cross, he's he's others minded. Yeah, you know, he's concerned about his mom. He's asking for people to be forgiven because they know not what they do. Like everywhere he goes, and by the way, this shows you the merciful patience of God. That from the beginning of the scriptures, this has been his story. He's he's he is so others minded. He is instituting covenants and chasing after his people, loving them. And from the beginning, what has humanity done in return? He's, they, we've despised and rejected God. Um, you know, I, I find it interesting that 
the way that God ordains everything is in the beginning we we rejected God in a garden. You know, Adam and Eve spat in his face and betrayed him. And Jesus, when before he's going to go to the cross, where is he? He's in a garden. And, you know, he's, he's pouring out his love to his disciples. And what happens? One of them comes and be, it's God being betrayed in a garden again. And so Jesus, he's walking through the same thing that people have always done to God. We don't want there to be an authority that reigns over us. We don't want anyone on a throne that controls us, even if it's our designer and the one who who knows what's best for us and has demonstrated again and again that he will do whatever is best for us, even if we don't like it. Um, and we despise him for it. Yeah. You know, human nature tends when we find that there's something superior right next to us, we tend to despise it um, because it shows us our our weaknesses and frailties and faults. And and they did that to Jesus. You know, when he would speak a word, they resented what he said. Um, when he modeled kindness, they resented it. Like everything about him, to the religious leaders especially, was just despised. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. I remember, you know, that first passage where it talks about someone feeling pain is in Genesis 6. We talked about this last week where it says that God's heart was filled with pain. And there's this line where it says, and God was grieved in his heart that he had made man. Mm-hmm. You know, that I wonder if this passage is is looking back to that. You know, he's a man of sorrows because yeah. he's looking at the lot of humanity you know, it's not like God looked at humanity in the days of the flood and was just, you know, grieved that he made man because he made a mistake. No, he's grieved because he knows, one, that the road of man walking away from him is a painful one, but he's also grieved because he knows what the cost will be to redeem man. Wow. Um, and it's there. There are I, there's some that probably will tell me that it's the height of arrogance to read something that you wrote yourself. <laughs> I don't know if that's true or not, but I I gave some thought to this when I was writing it for personal worship, uh, and so I'm just going to read it. It's just a couple sentences here. I said, let's give some thought to the sort of life Jesus led on the earth. At its start, he was born in a stable instead of a warm, comfortable home. While only a toddler. The king sought to put him to death, and he fled to Egypt with his family, becoming a first-century political refugee. He worked as a carpenter, a hard trade of manual labor. His public ministry began with a baptism by John, immediately after which he went without food 40 days before being tempted by his great adversary. Although many crowds embraced his message, Jewish religious leaders did not, leading to his arrest and execution. His closest friends and followers doubted him, until after they'd seen him rise from the dead. Jesus had sorrows aplenty and knew grief intimately, all on our behalf. Um, when you when you kind of look at the life that he led here in, on earth, there are so many times where you find him experiencing the hardships that we face also. I mean, here's somebody that his life had a rough start. You talk about people hiding from persecution. He was hiding from persecution as a, as a child. Yeah. We talk about somebody who, you, you know, it's like, oh, life is not easy. I've got a backbreaking labor. Jesus did that. He worked as a carpenter. Even the, at the start of his ministry, when he was tempted by the devil, it's like the first thing his ministry kicks off with is an intense trial 
from his greatest adversary. It's like everything that they, when we start lining up all the things about our life that like, well, God, God doesn't have to go through this. Really? You know, no, God did go through all of this for you. Um, and so I kind of think that when it talks about him being a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, Jesus was somebody who was acquainted with the hardships of our mm-hmm. life. Yeah, we had a that there's the line there where it says we hid our faces from him. Yeah. Yeah, we we had our men's breakfast not long ago and this wonderful man who's who's homeless came in and I saw him and I went up to him and I shook his hand and his response to me was like, "Thank you so much for being somebody who will shake my hand." And, you know, that's not a great act or anything. It wasn't, you know, pat myself on the back. I shook his hand. But it shocked me. Like, people don't shake your hand. That made such an impression on you um, because he feels untouchable. And I was thinking, you know, that's got to be such a different life. And then later on that afternoon, um, you know, starting to get dark, and I pulled up. I was on Broward Boulevard on my way home and stopped at a light, and a homeless man who looked – like he had some struggles, yeah. was walking in between the cars, and I thought, oh, don't make eye contact with him. Lift up your phone and pretend like you're on a phone call so that he doesn't knock on the window or expect you to acknowledge him. And when I was reading this verse this week, that's the first thing that came to my mind, that yeah. that Jesus, you know, he not only you know, didn't have the stately appearance, but that when he came around, you know, either because they didn't want to deal with what he was saying but regardless, the the outcome was the same. They hid their faces for him. Like, I don't want to interact with you. You're you're get away from me. Um, and to have to imagine, you know, in his perfections and having the purest form of love, this kind of love that will bear all cost and pursuing people, to have them not even be willing to look you in the eye, to hide mm-hmm. their faces from you so that they don't even have to interact with you, that kind of disdain. Um, that was like, oh, yeah. man. Like, I just imagine, you know, people say, well, he was God. But I don't think being divine would have made him, his life easier. I think it would have made it harder. You know, when we, we go around in this world, this broken world, we can't see all of the brokenness with purely righteous eyes. And I imagine if we did, it would be even more unbearable. It's like going from a stable society and being thrown in the middle of the Rwandan genocide. You'd be horrified, right, where they're kind of used to it. I imagine when Jesus came into this world with perfectly righteous heart, soul, mind, eyes – to be thrown into a world that is as sinfully broken and mean-spirited as this is, it would have made it harder for him, not easier, to have that perfect righteousness. Yeah. So verses 4 and 5 read, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Um, Boy, famous verses again. Um, Mm -hmm. It's it's remarkable that we go from talking about him being a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Like he experienced the sorrows of this world personally. He experienced the griefs of this world personally. But as if that wasn't enough, it says he's borne our griefs. So he looks at our pain and he says, I'll take it from you. 
He looks at our sorrow and says, he snatches it away and says, no, that's mine. I will carry that for you. And yet in the process of loving us that radically, how do we respond? We say, oh, you know, it's like when he was on the cross, people are coming by saying, if if you really are the son of God, you know, if God really loves you, then come down from that cross, mm-hmm. you know. So we said, oh, he must be stricken. God hates him. He's afflicted. So at every turn when he's doing the right thing and pouring out his love, what are we saying? We're shaming him for it. You know, look at him. You know, he's cursed of God. He's hanging on that tree. And it's like the further in he pressed with love, the more we made it unbearable, you know, seemingly unbearable for him and and deemed him to be a plague, you know, a curse. Um, And he was, as if it doesn't stop there with him saying, I'm going to snatch up your sorrows to myself. I'm going to take them from you. Now it gets to where theologically, like this is what's called imputation. You know, he snatches away our sins and he takes them to himself. And it says he was wounded for our transgressions. In other words, he takes the just penalty that we deserve, that we've been building up with all of our rebellion and selfishness and everything else. And Jesus says, I'm not just taking your grief and I'm not just taking your sorrow. I'm taking your transgression and I'm going to be wounded for that. I'm going to take all of your iniquity and I'm going to be bruised for that. For you to have peace, I'm going to take the chastisement. And for you to be healed, I'm going to be whipped to shreds. That's what verse 5 is getting at. And it's just like at what his love knows no limits. Um, you just see the costly nature of it. And it's like he, he will stop at nothing for us. It's, it's, it's remarkable. It's, mm-hmm. it's hard to wrap your mind around. Like what, how much more could you go? Like no advantages, suffering all of this. And yet it's like, that's not enough. I'll take your sorrows. That's not enough. I'll take your grief. That's not enough. I'm taking your transgressions and your iniquities. And, you know, I'm taking the chastisement that you've deserved and I'm taking the stripes. You know, I just imagine someone huddling over a child, just taking all the whipping and scourging to shield the child. And that is what our Savior has done for us. And he's been shredded and his humanity to protect us. Um, this verse is also one that has a phrase that is, it's repeated in a lot of different churches to mean perhaps different things. This, the last phrase of verse five, where it says, and by his stripes, we are healed. Um, I know that your background when you first came to faith coming out of Catholicism was in an assemblies of God church. Mm-hmm. Um, they would have an interpretation of this healed here as being physical healing. Is that what you think it means? No. <laughs> Absolutely. Eventually, I'll say in glory, yes. You know, because in, in the sense of healing, he's healed us to God. We are in right relationship. All of the, the brokenness and everything that sin has caused to us in terms of our soul, all of that is healed. And so in glory, Every affliction, every infirmity is going to be healed permanently and forever. But where this gets abused is people will say, you know, if you just claim Jesus, you know, by his stripes you're healed. So therefore, if you claim Jesus, you know, my mom, if she just claimed Jesus, her cancer would go away. That's absurd. That's just an idiotic interpretation of this verse. Right. Um, 
my mom is healed by Jesus, but it doesn't guarantee that every infirmity or headaches or, or whatever is guaranteed to be healed because he went to the cross, at least not on this side of glory. You will be healed for sure. Every aspect of you will be healed, but that's not a, a verse that promises healing for everything because of what Jesus did if you just believe strongly enough. And if if that was meant to be the case, then all of his apostles failed all of you know the followers in the early centuries that went to unbelievable lengths to be martyred you know apparently their faith wasn't strong enough you mm-hmm. know because yeah. they weren't spared um I, I i it drives me crazy when prosperity gospel preachers try um it, it cheapens the verse honestly it's the the spiritual condition that it's talking about here is far more important than any physical malady someone might have. Far more, and that's what's being healed here. Yeah. Um, I, you know, we talked about how uh, these Isaiah fifty three is quoted so often in the New Testament. This particular verse fifty three five is quoted by Peter in his letter to the churches. And I've always thought this was a, a good answer to the question of, does this mean physical healing? In 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, verse 24, it reads, "...who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed." So there Peter there understands the idea of the healing being... This thing that we di- we've that we're we're healed from that poison of sin that that Jesus mm-hmm. took our sins on the cross that that then through that through his substitutionary death that we also have died to sin and might live for righteousness that's the healing that's going on here um, mm-hmm. that's I think uh, something that but it is something that you know you I've heard it I know you've heard it. I think that a lot of people have said, you know, by his stripes I'm healed. Uh, I like, yeah, but probably not the way you're talking about right now. Um, <laughs> and I think the, the the hard part about that is that because not everybody is healed physically. Some people are. I don't mean to take away from mm-hmm. the miracles. Yeah, no, that, that happens. God does. It does. There are people who survive and turn around miraculously from situations where. It just doesn't make any sense apart from the intervention of God. There are things that happen. You did a whole class on the meaning behind yeah. the miracles where you talked about one miracle after another after another. And a lot of those were miracles of healing, some of them in contemporary settings. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have these things that we look at and say, this is God acting. So I don't want to take away from that, but because, but it doesn't happen all the time. Like again, like you talked about with your mom, you know, could the Lord heal your mom at the last minute? Yes, he Absolutely. could. Has he? Not so far. So to say that then there's something wrong with her, that's the, that right. is the egregious part. I agree with you on that. Yeah, she's, she's not grabbing hold of his striping to be healed. That's just reprehensible it's, to me. It's just awful, you know. So I, I, you know, and, and there will come a day, ladies and gentlemen, there will come a day when that's talking about Absolutely in our physical bodies because we'll have new ones. <laughs> We're going to have new ones yeah. that, that don't have the defects <laughs> that this one has, that they're not <sighs> sinful at their core. We won't have to deal with those thoughts and impulses that we can't repeat to anybody. Yeah. 
I'm ready for my glorified body. Yeah. I'll, I'm not, I'll, I'm not ready to bail on, on family and whatever, but if you could give me my glorified body now, I'd, I'd be good with it. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> verse six is another really well known verse. It's one that, uh, if you're a fan of the book of Romans, this verse should sound <laughs> familiar to you. Isaiah writes, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I think that that is such a brilliant prophecy of us, of you and me, because it's not just that we've turned away from the Lord. We have. Hum- humankind, if left to their own devices, we will turn away from the Lord, but not just to follow. We'll just follow our own way. It's like mm-hmm. it was a, this idea is that we're we're just wandering. We're wandering apart from the Lord, like following nothing, following ourselves. Um, yeah. Our life is rudderless without him. Yeah, and, you know, th- this is one of those things where people are like, gosh, this Christianity stuff, you know, it's it's all guilt and shame. You know, when it says everyone has gone astray, we've all turned away. Like th- that to me, I have the, the total opposite response to that because I think there's something in the human condition that recognizes something's not right. You know, we recognize that there's an emptiness in us that we can't figure out how to satisfy. We There's something in us that even by our own standards, we fail to keep up. Like we could say, okay, this is my way. And then a week later, you know, how many people set New Year's resolutions and by February they're over? You know, <laughs> we, we can't even yeah. keep our own way, much less the Lord's way. And the Lord is coming to us in the middle of saying, I will go to the depths of hell for you. But you've all gone astray. You've all gone astray. What that does for me is it gives me the liberty and the freedom to kind of go, ah, he knows me. <laughs> he knows me. He knows that I go astray. He knows that I turn to my own way. And what? Like it doesn't end with with it being, and he sent them away because they were failures and they deserved. No, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's amazing. Do you understand the freedom that's being offered there? It's like God sees you and says, I know. I know that you don't measure up. I know you don't measure up even in your own eyes. And what I'm saying to you is you're mine. Yeah. Even all of the ways that you've gone astray, all the ways that you've failed, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Yeah. And, you know, Jesus picks up on this metaphor of the shepherd all throughout the New Testament and all of the different gospels. Um, and one that was particularly profound to me, that was hard for me to believe, you know, I was raised Catholic. I was, you know, very much like I've got to earn heaven in my mindset. I got to be good enough. And I, when, when someone came to me and said, no, 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 it's free. He's done it all for you. That was offensive to me mm-hmm. because no, 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 I have to do something. I can't just, you know, rip God off by, you know, not doing anything. And the the parable of the lost sheep was huge for me because it, it's like, you know, if a man has a hundred sheep, one of them goes astray, will need not leave the 99 to go after the one. And that was nice, you know, like, okay, I felt like the one. I knew I was astray. I knew that I'd gone astray. But this idea, the rest of that parable says, when the shepherd finds the one that has gone astray, he rejoices. Like, he's not like, you stupid sheep. Like, he rejoices to be able to bring the one that's astray back into the flock. That's the heart of God. And so, yeah. it's the Bible's not saying, you've gone astray, therefore feel guilty and ashamed about it. It's saying, let the Lord 
take you in. He delights in redeeming and paying all the penalty of what you've done so that you can be with him, accept that gift, and recognize that the Lord celebrates you when you come to recognize that. It thrills his heart. In one of the earlier weeks in this uh, study from Isaiah, I had to do a little reading about the nature of sheep because we are talked about as being sheep um, so many times. Jesus used that so many times in the New Testament. And one of the things that I didn't know, I've always thought of sheep as being unintelligent, um, just dumb animals. I'm like, that's why God calls us sheep because we're dumb. <clears throat> um <laughs> And I'm not saying that we're smart. <laughs> don't don't take that from what I'm saying. I'm not saying we're smart. But the thing that I learned about sheep was that sheep are, in fact, very intelligent animals, but that they are highly relational. Like if a, if a, a female sheep, a mother, a ewe gives birth to the lamb, that unless they are separated – they will continue to live together, sort of, you know, as a family, as we, like, they'll sleep together, they'll stay together. Uh, you know, sheep recognize their own offspring. Also, this idea that the sheep do, in fact, know very well the voice of their shepherd. Now, when they don't hear the shepherd's voice, they scatter like idiots. Um, and that's why you have to have <laughs> sheep dogs to get them all back. But the point is that this, where Jesus talks about my sheep know my voice, the reason that he's telling that to a culture of shepherds is they understand what that means. They understand that when they call to the sheep, that the sheep know their voice, the sheep come to yeah. them, that, that their voice calms the sheep and the sheep yeah. stop running around like idiots. Um, and that's to, you know, I'm like, man, I tell you, when I think about all we like sheep have gone astray, when do sheep go astray? Sam, they go astray when they don't hear the voice of their shepherd anymore. Mm -hmm. And that's when yeah. we go astray too, when we're not hearing the voice of our shepherd. Yeah, which means we're not in availing ourselves of the voice of the shepherd, which right. is given to us right. in the scriptures. It's it's given to us on Sunday mornings. It's given to us in Bible studies. And there are times where, you know, we just tune it out, we don't go, we go our own way, and that never that never ends well. Yeah. Um and we need to constantly be seeking out the voice of the shepherd, which yeah. is given to us. So Isaiah fifty three seven, again, another well known verse. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Um, there were two verses that I included as related scriptures in this week's personal worship. Uh, the scene when Jesus appeared before Caiaphas and, and Caiaphas tried to get him to answer questions and Jesus just stood there and didn't say anything. And then before the Roman governor Pontius Pilate, uh, the same thing. It says Pilate was amazed that Jesus didn't answer him. In fact, during all of that interrogation between Caiaphas and Pilate, the only time Jesus answered the question was when Caiaphas said, are you the Christ, the Son of God? And Jesus said, you said that I am. <laughs> and Caiaphas is ripping his robe, you know. Um, mm -hmm. you know. But he didn't answer all of his accusations. Um, I mean, that's a remarkable it, – it fulfills this prophecy really precisely. But I think that it's also interesting that it says, as a sheep before its shearers is silent, because to me that speaks of the servant's willingness 
to basically give up, you know, to use a modern metaphor, to give the shirt off his back. It's like to to be divested of everything. It's like you can even mm-hmm. shear me. I'll give up everything for my, for his covering being this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He literally is giving his covering of righteousness. The New yeah. Testament makes all of that. So that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that before, but yeah. And it, it's almost like, you know, there's two things that he's doing here. You remember that he's that, that very first verse that we started on, that he acts prudently. He sure. knows exactly what to do to accomplish what it is that his will is. And this is part of it. Like, he doesn't contest the charges. He's not before the Sanhedrin going, wait, 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 wait. I appeal. I appeal. You've broken this. You've broken this. I did this. I didn't do that. Like, he doesn't sit there and, and desperately try to, to have his innocence declared. He's quiet. And the one time that, that he speaks up is when he says something that he knows will be a death sentence. Yeah, you know, he and the other part of this, he when he says, you know, I am the Christ, and I'm going to come in clouds of glory and all that, and Caiaphas rips his robes, and they all start, you know, pummeling him and blindfold and spit on him and everything else. The other part about that is Jesus is not recognizing them as a legitimate court. Um, right. If you know anything about the trial that's going on, they they break like 13 laws of Jewish jurisprudence. And how a trial was supposed to be set. I mean, it's a kangaroo court. It's a mockery. And so he just stands there without, you know, he's like, you know, I'm not, you, I'm not even under oath, you know, but the one time he speaks guarantees his fate. Yeah. Um, and that's exactly the fate that he wanted to rescue people like them. Yeah. There was only one judge whose verdict mattered to him, and that was the judge right. looking down from heaven. Um, I think that it's interesting, like you say, Jesus being innocent, not protesting his innocence. You want to know where I see <laughs> super supernatural levels of restraint? That would be it. Because Sam, I oh, would man. be, I would be shaking the walls trying to convince these people that they were doing a terrible thing, that they were, that they had arrested. I've done nothing. You know, I would be mm-hmm. defending myself to the last moment. Um, yeah, so Jesus does not respond to the court, but when Caiaphas comes to him in that moment where he says, you have said so, Caiaphas's words to him are, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son yeah. of God. And so what he does there is he says, okay, ignore this court. I want you to stand before God now and testify. And Jesus at that moment says, gladly. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to testify before you guys, this kangaroo court, but you adjure me to testify in front of the living God. You have said so. But I yeah. tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And it's on at that moment. Yeah. At that moment, everybody's done, and they're 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 ready for the death penalty. Yeah. Seated on the right hand of power, that would be high and lifted up. That's right. Yeah. That's exactly right. There he is. That's good. So uh, Isaiah fifty three eight. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people. He was stricken. Um, he was taken from prison and from judgment. You know, if there was anybody that was tried by a kangaroo court and not given a fair trial and rushed off to his execution, Mm -hmm. it was Jesus. Um, I think that that's what this is talking about here. He was taken from prison and from judgment. It's like, 
he wasn't even allowed to be properly judged. Like you said, they broke 13 laws concerning the trial for him. He mm-hmm. was given no due process at all. He was rushed off to uh, to face judgment. In the middle of the night. In the yeah. middle of the night because they feared what the crowds would do if they did it in the day. So like parts of jurisprudence are you're not allowed to put someone to death on the same day that they're found guilty or within the 24-hour period. You're not allowed to to receive less than two agreeing sources of testimony. You're not allowed to have people who are participating in the the judicial part of the trial testifying like they do all these you're not allowed to have a trial on a holy day well this is right in the middle of passover so they break all of these laws because they know you remember when they went to judas they said you know we need to find a time when the crowds are not going to be around so we don't incite a riot so it's like they wait for you know christmas eve at midnight when all of the families are together and there's no one in the streets and everybody is is treating this as sacred and they go to work in the middle of that. Like everything about this is so manipulated to be able to get their way and not have him have any way out. And Jesus, to their surprise, doesn't contest it. Right. He, he's not, oh my goodness, no, 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 please, please. Like he's he he goes along with it and they're strangely enough he is acting exactly as he needs to to accomplish his will yeah this verse is one that when i've had a conversation with somebody who is who's jewish um and i've brought up as we've been talking about the old testament i i bring up prophecies from isaiah and they'll say they'll repeat that line to me that well this is all talking about david David is God's servant. So this is David, 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 David. And Isaiah 53, 8 is one where I'll just ask, when was David cut off from the land of the living? Well, David died. I'm like, yes, David died. David got old and he died. But David was not cut off from the land of the living. That That is clearly a reference to he did not die of natural causes. He was cut off from the land of the living. When did that happen to David? The answer is it didn't. Yeah. And, if, and that same – like who can speak of his descendants what it's saying is he never had natural children that's the well david certainly did yeah um so it's saying he's cut off before he can leave a physical legacy jesus doesn't have physical children he had spiritual children right he's grafting people into being adopted to god the father like so he has tons of spiritual descendants but no physical descendants so when it says who can speak of his descendants well what that's saying is this person got cut off before he could have kids um who in the world does do they think that fits it doesn't fit hezekiah it doesn't fit david it doesn't fit all these other alternative explanations for isaiah 53 so you're right this verse is very definitively pointing you to to jesus yeah yeah. Isaiah 53, 9, and they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. I think that, that the people that were the, the wicked men who had brought about the execution of Jesus sought to not only to, to execute him, but in a way to, to try and discredit him. Like, we're going to get mm-hmm. him out there. We're going to, we're going to put him on the, on the tree, nailed to the tree, because in our in our doctrine, that means he's cursed by God, and then he's going to die next to some thieves who are, you know. So he's he's in the company of thieves, and then I believe at least it was their 
desire to have him buried in an ignominious way. Um, mm-hmm. But that's not what happened. Joseph of Arimathea, who was a member of the Sanhedrin and had secretly become a follower of Jesus, it says that in the New Testament, it says that he boldly went before Pilate and asked Pilate to give him the body of Jesus so that he could then bury it in a tomb that it says he, Joseph, had had cut for himself out of the rock. Mm -hmm. Tombs back then, Sam, those were reused all the time, right? So if you had one that Mm -hmm. was new, cut just for you, you had some Mm -hmm. money, didn't you? Yeah, this would have been very expensive. And Joseph of Arimathea, being on the Sanhedrin, would have been a very wealthy man. And so, you know, not only is Jesus hung on a tree, but he's crucified outside the city walls, which was another expression of someone who was cursed. So they wanted to bring as much shame as they possibly could to Jesus. And then when he is put in a tomb, and it's a tomb that was freshly cut from the rock that no man had ever laid in. Um, and a lot of that is is pointing back toward, you know, the virgin birth, which is, right. you know, you have Joseph, who is the one who owns the tomb. You have Mary Magdalene, who's the one who discovers the empty tomb, and Jesus is coming out of this virgin, never-before-used tomb. It's it's echoing back to his the birth narrative, which shows you that the whole purpose of his life was rehearsed at his birth. Like, none of this is an accident. It's almost like, <laughs> you know, the thumbprint that you see where the the first birth is anticipating the second birth of mm-hmm. the resurrection which is coming out of a rich man's tomb. Yeah. Yeah. This also by the way is another one of those verses that when somebody tells you that Isaiah 53 is talking about David, this is another verse that you could say, but how would you say David had done no violence? Yeah. Just just yeah, right. yeah. just asking. I mean, David was a guy who he wasn't allowed to build the temple. Why? Because he was a man of war. There was blood on his hands. That doesn't sound like because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Not sure <laughs> when you could say that about David either. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so it's hitting these characters. You know, David known for the violence, deceit in his mouth is as a reference back to Jacob. Um Right, and, and it's like he is so much better than his forefathers, the ones who who preceded him, and yet he's buried with the wicked. Um, it's it's kind of stunning, you know. Jesus, when he's crushing the Pharisees in Matthew twenty three, and he's telling them of all their problems, he says, you know, you go around to the tombs of all the prophets and you honor them, but you're exactly the type of people who put them there in the first place. Um, and this is this is you know right here. This is exactly what they did. They want they want to shame him, and yet he's the only one among them who had done no violence and who, yeah. who, where deception wasn't in his mouth. He's utterly pure, and he is treated like garbage. Now, verse ten is where we take a pivot to looking up <laughs> uh, to mm-hmm. to the end here, because we just had this description of this servant who had done nothing wrong. He was innocent. He stood silent. He was rushed to judgment. You know, our transgressions were laid on him. He, he was given stripes for our behalf. All of these things that we hear and that he had done no violence. There was no deceit in his mouth. And verse 10 says to us, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put into grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. 
not because the Lord wanted to. Sometimes the whole Trinity thing gets lost in this conversation. The Lord was bruising himself on our behalf. Yes, it was God the Father. Yes, it was God the Son. But these are the same person. The Trinity is a doctrine that's just going to make it hard to talk about any <laughs> that, that, that gets in the way of a lot of these conversations because it sounds like, okay, the Father is doing something to the Son. I'm like, yes, but the Father then is also doing it to himself. Mm-hmm. You, I mean, you got to remember, Jesus is the Word of God made flesh. And so this Word, in some sense, that's speaking about something that he will accomplish 700 years after it's written – this is not a surprise to Jesus. He is part of the divine council that comes up with this plan. And the ideas, like when it says it, it's, it's uses, you know, in some translations, it'll say, you know, they'll try to make it, well, I don't like the fact that it says it pleased the Lord to crush him, but that's what it is. You know, we can't say, oh, this is mistranslated. And it's really just the will, how some of them try to tamp it down to make it look nicer. No, it pleased the Lord to crush him. And you think, well, that doesn't sound right. That doesn't sound just, but you have to look in the eternal plan and mindset of God. What is it that's accomplished when he crushes him? At the moment the Lord crushes him, billions of his children, sons and daughters, are now declared innocent. The warfare, the spiritual war between God the Father and me and you and everyone else, as that hammer is coming down and he is crushing Jesus, all of us go free. All of us are declared innocent in his sight. The relationship spiritually is now restored. And yes, that pleases the Lord. It pleases him greatly. Is he getting delight in watching his son suffer, that would be an absurd way to read this particular line. No, of course not. It's it's excruciating for the father. Just as the son is going, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's experiencing this alienation. The Lord finds no delight in that, either as the son or the father. Where the pleasure comes in is that you are now being adopted and made righteous in his, righteous in his sight, innocent in his sight. And so it pleased God to crush him and to put him to grief. Why? Because of everything that it said before this already, that he's taking the iniquities, your iniquities, his, his, you know, your chastisement is going on him. You're now freed from all of that. And that brings great delight to the Lord. And what else brings the Lord delight is he knows how this all plays out, that Jesus might be crushed in this moment under the just wrath of a holy God. But what's going to happen? His soul becomes an offering for sin, and then the one who died, who has no descendants in the previous verse, remember? Mm -hmm. Now, all of a sudden, he shall see his seed and prolong his days. In other words, he's going to – this one who's being put to death is going to prolong his days. Death isn't going to hold him. And by the way, the one who's cut off before you can see his descendants, oh, he's going to have more seed than you know what to do with. So it's like – Everything in this, the Lord's pleasure in crushing him, we look at and go, no, 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 that can't be right. <laughs> oh, my goodness, look at what it accomplishes. Sam is now a child of God. Mark is now a child of God. If you're listening and you've given your life to Christ, you're freed in this moment. And now, all of a sudden, the one who's cut off has seed. The one who's going to die has prolonged days. He's going to conquer death and the pleasure of the Lord, right, that pleasure that he feels in crushing him is going to prosper 
in his hand. The one who's crushed will have the pleasure of the Lord in his hand. That's what brings great delight. God knows how this story plays out, and that is what brings him so much pleasure. We can't read this like God's going, ha-ha, Jesus, take that. You, no, that's that's just stupid. You'll hear critics try to spin it that way, but that's not at all what's going on here. The sovereign plan of God is being carried out, this beautiful gospel, and God finds great delight in that. Yeah. I think that's borne out, too, in verse 11, because um, it says, He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. This idea that the servant will see what his labor has accomplished and be satisfied by that. Um, It is, uh, you know, the the goal in what he did was was us. I mean, that that goes to that Mm -hmm. verse in Hebrews that talks about that for the joy that was set before him, he despised the shame, like didn't even regard the shame of the cross. He was, he, you know, did he go to the cross gladly? No. Did he go willingly? Yes. And why did yeah. he go willingly? Because of the joy set before him. And who is that? That's us. That's his people. That's <laughs> his seed. That's what he sees. The labor of his soul is us. And that what makes, that's what's going to make him satisfied. And and one of the ways – this is one of those verses. I love the New King James Version, which is what we're reading. But if you look at how the majority of the other translations translate this, uh, this is a faithful translation. But I love what they bring out of that word for labor is it's, it's an anguish. So it literally – like if you look at the ESV, it will say out of the anguish of his soul, he will see and be satisfied. Or the NIV says out of this – and the, after the suffering of his soul, he will see – Right. And so I love that picture of the Lord who is, you know, on the cross and he is at the height of the, the being crushed under the weight of God's wrath at the greatest moment of desperation. Hear this out of the anguish of his soul. He can see what he's purchasing, like you're talking about. Out of the, the deepest anguish, out of the greatest labor of his soul, he's looking forward, sees you and he's saying, it's worth it. I'm satisfied. This is a good exchange. I will take all the crushing, all the despisal, all the rejection, everything that this chapter's talked about that he is enduring for us. And he, at that moment, out of the anguish of his soul, says, I'd do it again. This is a good deal. I'm satisfied, which is mind-blowing, but it's such a powerful picture to me. I love that. I love that line. I think that uh, – and one of the reasons that I think that they chose to render it as labor of his soul is that in the in the King James Version, it uses the phrase the travail of his soul. And that term travail in particular was often used to describe the labor pains of childbirth. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I've always sort of looked at it from the standpoint that – Yes, it was suffering and anguish. It was painful, but it was essentially the labor pains, the travail, the anguish that was that that produced this child. See, um, when I read labor, I'm thinking of a guy out in a field working away. I'm not yeah. thinking a woman in birth. That that right. actually helps um, the labor of his soul. Right? Wow. That's, that's and cool. that's why I go back to the. You know, I'm sorry. I was raised on the King James. <laughs> 
<laughs> the, you know, I love the new King James also, but I, but I'm always looking at the King James too. And where it talks about in the King James, it renders that travail and travail cool. talks about suffering and it's very frequently used to describe labor pains. And so I think Got that's it. why the NKJV guys rendered it. They were thinking labor pains, not necessarily labor like, you know, working in the coal mine. No, he was this labor <laughs> like I'm producing. Okay. I'm that's, giving that's birth. anguish. Yeah. That right. is it. Hey, uh, <laughs> your wife's had four children. That's right. My wife's had two. I'm amazed any woman has more than one. <laughs> hey, they looked through the anguish and they were satisfied. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's and that's it. The you, you know how much mothers love their children. It's that they have more than one. <laughs> They're able to well, even and even one just to go through that whole experience. Mothers are so focused on that baby that's going to result. Um, it is that is a beautiful thing to see. It's like, and I don't, I know I always run the risk of getting people irritated at me when I wax too poetical on that, but both of the times I saw what my wife was willing to go through just to have those children. And I think that, that is love. That she was willing to, and in the case of our son, it was a problematic birth. It was an emergency C-section and she wound up in intensive care for a little while with super high blood pressure and all these other issues. She risked her life to bring him into this world. Man, hmm. you know, that's love, man. That's love. Yeah, so, it is. You know. So yes, I would interpret this as labor pains, but, uh, I guess I'm a new King James apologist. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, so verse 12. Working in the coal mine. That was good. Yeah, that's, it's not. So verse 12, <laughs> and this is, uh, we'll, we'll wind up on, the, we'll conclude on this one. Um, Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many. And made intercession for the transgressors. You know, you start, you think about the people that are normally numbered among the great, that are considered the strong. Mm -hmm. They are the people that win, the king that, that wins, the, the general that leads the army to victory, right? We have all that. And yet, in this case, God's servant, who will be, who will be among the great, who is going to be one of the strong, he's great and he's strong. Because he poured out his soul unto death for the sake of the transgressors. It's awesome. It, it's awesome. It's 180 degrees from where we normally see people as great or strong. Yeah. And that word for strong, like if you look at it in the Hebrew where it's most often used, is like when it talks to Abraham about, you know, out of you I'll build a, I'll create a great nation. It's usually referred to as like numerous, like it's just so many of them. It's just this massive, massive nation of people. And so when it says that he's dividing the spoil with the strong, I don't want you to think like, oh, look at that guy. He's got big muscles and he's he can do a lot of stuff because he's powerful. Like it's it's saying that this is going to be a mighty, strong, huge <laughs> you know, nation that's coming. And so it's an echo like Hebrew poetry does. I'll divide the portion with the many – I'll divide the spoil with the strong. It's meaning out of this is going to come such a mighty nation that it will just cover the earth. It's, it's you know, and my inheritance will be shared with all of them. Because that's one of those lines, like if you know Jesus, he what is he? It's the meek who inherit the earth. 
you know, not necessarily someone who's going, look at me, I'm strong. So I think that's a cool meaning that it's it's hearkening back to the promises to even to Abraham to make him a mighty nation. Mm-hmm. And that means you're going to have so many sons that cover the whole earth, you know, you can't even count them. I'll divide the spoil with them. That's interesting because uh, I hadn't thought – see, I hadn't thought about that. But you're right. Um, Atsum means mighty, vast, numerous, countless. You're right. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't even really thought about that because what that's saying really is that the Lord is going to divide him, the servant, a portion with the great, and then mm-hmm. the servant is going to to divide that and share it with all of us. Mm-hmm. Which, how big is that inheritance? Yeah. It's infinite. I mean, that's, you know? so I'm just like, saying, that's like, he, he gets this great reward, Sam, and he turns around and goes, Sam, I'm going to give some of this to you. Mm-hmm. That's, all of, I mean, all of his attributes, like that's one of the lines in Second Thessalonians where it says, you know, he's going to share his glory with us. Like, you know, we, as, as, you know, nice reformed Presbyterians, we love to say, sola deo gloria, to God alone be the glory. But he's such a good God. Like his scripture turns around and says, yeah, I'm the only one who earned glory, but I'm going to share it with you as a free gift. It's just everything. Uh, to understand our God, he is He is such a servant. You know, it's the perfect word. He's, he's just constantly willing, at least on this side of glory and then, and then beyond, but so willing to humble himself for, the, for our good. To, to serve and pour himself out. Like he's he's not a god to be a doormat. He's not tame. You can't go, well, you're you're God, so I'm just gonna walk all over you. He's he's pretty ferocious <laughs> as well in yeah. his holiness. But to those that are weak, to those that come to him needy, the level of his humility to stoop to serve those that are needy, the outcast, the orphan, the widow, I mean, go down the line. It's it's remarkable that he's that humble to serve the needy, and so then that's a challenge for us to recognize <laughs> we're needy, yeah. you know, because he pours himself out to no end to those who need him. Yeah, you know, it is a thing that uh, when when people do criticize the Christian faith and saying you guys are always trying to make everybody feel guilty and and shame for their sins and that sort of thing, I'm like, you know, I. I <laughs> I understand that I, – I guess I understand the confusion because none of us are happy about our sins. Um, but if you understand the Christian faith, um, it's – yes, there is, there, there is that sorrow for sin that we are – we do feel the shame of, of what we do wrong. But he takes all of that away from us. You know, It's mm-hmm. like he says, I'll take that shame. Mm-hmm. He's going to be the man of sorrows. They're all laid on him. Yes, we feel those things. And then we know that our Savior has taken them from us. He has taken the sorrow. He has taken the shame so that we can let go of it. Mm -hmm. Doesn't mean we don't feel it. Doesn't mean we don't acknowledge it. But we also know that we're giving it to him and that he's going to give us in return a measure of his glory. Not not in this life. <laughs> well, okay, in the heavenlies now, okay, we'll do the positional <laughs> truth thing. Yes, that's true. 
Paul does say that he's given us all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places with Christ. So yeah. in the sense in which we have one foot in this world and one foot in the next, we've been given that. You know, God does that timey-wimey, wibbly-wobbly thing all the time, just like Doctor Who. God sees time differently than we do. So in God's perception, we are already justified and glorified and so on because he sees all of history in one eternal Look, I remember one of my Bible college professors saying that God sees all of time in one eternal look. It's like he has the ability to see it all. I'm like, first of all, I can't even understand yeah, how that, that works. That makes my brain hurt. Exactly. I can't even understand how that works. Uh, and yet, you know, and yet it's true. He really is somebody that God is outside of time. Uh, the linear progression of time confounds you and me, Sam, but it doesn't, yeah. doesn't seem to have much effect on God. Yeah. And there's, one of my favorites verses about repentance and like you're talking about feeling guilty, it comes in, in Romans, so you'll be a fan, mm-hmm. um, is when it says it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. Right. You know, if, if you believe that God is up there with a hammer ready to whack you, you know, whenever you're doing wrong, you might repent out of fear and you might say, Oh my goodness, like I need, I need to repent of this, but it'll, it'll just feel like slavery. Yeah. You know, when you, when you try to get better, when you try to walk correctly, then it's just going to be like, so that, so that he won't hit me with that hammer that I imagine him having. But where Paul says it's the kindness of God that leads to authentic repentance, like lasting repentance where you turn away from your sin and you're changed. It's looking at his kindness. It's looking at the God of Isaiah 53. It's looking at the Savior of Isaiah 53 and saying, oh, my goodness, he loves me that much. He would endure all of that for me and look at it and do it joyfully and feel like he was getting a good deal and he's satisfied out of the anguish of his soul, like he loves me that much. And then all of a sudden you realize how precious he is and how he's freely offered right in your hands. You can grab hold of him. It makes it much easier to let go of this entangling and snaring sin when you have something that beautiful to grab hold of. And you recognize that it's just overwhelming kindness and patience that's calling you to repentance. It makes it much easier and more joyful to walk away from that sin that is causing you shame and guilt. Well, that is a good word and probably one that we can end on here in our study of Isaiah chapter 53. Um, I'm not sure exactly how we're going to edit this, but it's probably going to become a two-parter. <laughs> uh, because it's been almost 90 minutes. Um, I'm, I'm just, hey, I'm just amazed we did, we were able to finish it in less than four hours, Sam. Yeah, uh, really. There's, there's, so, there's just so much in this chapter. Well, we hope that you've enjoyed your time with us, that it's been uh, profitable for you. Uh, we have uh, a few more weeks to go in our study here from the book of Isaiah, so we hope you'll come along with us through the end of that. Um, if you would like to avail yourself of our uh, daily personal worship that goes along with this, or perhaps see the sermons that are preached on Sunday morning on these same passages, because all three of these things work together, you can find all of those at our website at riovistachurch.com. That's R-I-O, vistachurch.com. Or you can find it in our free Rio Vista Church smartphone app, which is available for your Apple or Android devices. Just go to the app store of your device and search for Rio Vista Community Church, and uh, you'll find it there. 
You can also hear the Out of Water podcast on Google Podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, and on Spotify, wherever fine podcasts are served. Ours will be there also. Uh, we will be back next week with another from the series in the book of Isaiah, and we look forward to seeing you then. We hope you enjoyed your time with us, and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater. Water.